Let's see Jesus in his word. John chapter 5 is where we will be today and the next two Sundays. It's kind of like a three-part mini-series on John 5, and you'll see why as you study it. It's an entire text beginning with a story and then two phases of um, teaching or explanation uh, to follow, but an exciting topic as we look at a new aspect of our Lord from the Gospel of John. And I want to commend you as a church family. I, I, we, as the shepherds here, love feeding you God's Word because we know that you long indeed to see Christ in His Word. I think, I know, to, to be a fact that in some places it's kind of a wrestling match almost with the congregation. People want to hear one thing and the, the pastors feel like they need to be preaching something else and I just feel like there's so much alignment here as we just want to see Christ in His Word. We share that. And we want to see it again today. Though I will be studying with you this morning the entire story, which begins in verse 1 and goes down to verse 18, I want to just read for you a few of the verses in the middle to start off with. Let's start... Uh, verse 6, and make our way to the end of verse 9. John 5, 6 through 9. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. It's one of the most popular advertising campaigns of all time. You may not remember it precisely, but these words certainly will jog the memory of some and at least resonate with the ethos of many. It sounds very American. It reads, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes. The ones who see things differently, they're not fond of rules. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them, but the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward, and while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius Because the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. That's from Apple's 1997 campaign, Think Different. In it, they try to glorify those who are perceived to be world changers. And for them, a world changer is someone who has to resist the status quo. They have to reject the rules that have been placed upon them. And so while you may or may not remember the commercial, you can certainly get the idea. The outside the box deserve special recognition and praise. And so as we consider this text and even the verses that we just read, do you think that Jesus would fit in such a list, in such a category? We're trying to think today of Jesus and how to honor Him, but when you think of Jesus, do you think of Him primarily as a rule follower or a rule breaker? It all depends on whose rules we're talking about, right? I mean, there's certainly a side of Jesus that would get on many people's nerves in this room. We wouldn't want it to be true, and yet... 
Some of us want to follow things, you know, by the list. We, we play it safe. We want to do exactly what's expected of us in every circumstance and situation. And you see Jesus in certain settings and you think, what is he doing? Why is he so provocative? Why is he so seemingly rebellious? Why does he break this rule, that rule? Couldn't he have just got along? And then there are other people who think that and really appreciate the fact that that Jesus kind of like stuck it to the establishment. He was his own man. Uh, He didn't bow the knee to anyone or anything. He wouldn't allow anyone to overcome him, to resist his rule or his authority. He truly was a, a roaring lion, not just a suffering lamb. And so our value or perception of Jesus as a rule breaker or a rule follower probably has a major bearing on how we live that out in our own lives. Some resist the establishment thinking that they're being like Jesus. Uh, Some try to align themselves with it thinking that they're obeying Jesus. But the text today actually points to something over and above both. We'll see in these few verses, not Jesus merely as a rule follower or as a rule breaker, but as the ruler of the rules themselves. It's a very provocative story. I mean, up to this point in the book of John, we've actually seen like repeated emphasis upon Jesus' might, his strength, right? Like he can do almost anything, it seems, up to this point. I mean, he's reversed disease, he's turned water into wine. I mean, we've seen him like foretell the future, he knows things that other people don't know, and it's been a beautiful and majestic picture of Jesus' might, his strength. And we've spent a good deal of time in our study of John so far also analyzing the right response to him. We've talked about uh, bona fide belief versus a bogus belief, like what it means to actually submit to him and his rule and faith. So we've seen much about what Jesus can do as the Redeemer and much of how we should respond to him in repentance and faith. But John here, starting in chapter 5, is going to unfold, if you will, another page in the life of Jesus that he is yet to focus on. He hinted at it in John 1, but now he's going to expand upon it. If we already know of Jesus' might, now he's going to focus on Jesus' right. If we already know of Jesus' ability, now he's going to turn the spotlight on Jesus' authority. There's a difference between the two. Someone could be uh, super strong and have lots of power, but not actually have the right to exercise that in every way that they desire. Some people have the authority to do certain things, but they don't have the capability to carry it out. John is going to portray a picture of Jesus as both might and right, ability and authority. And he exercises his authority in this text in a provocative way. For those of you who want to take notes this morning, we're going to follow that simple outline we used a couple weeks ago that works very well for narratives, S-P-A, SPA, Story, Point, Application. You can make your own subdivisions for the story, but it's a pretty simple story to follow. I want to explain it to you, but I want you to be on the lookout for something as we dive into these verses. I want you to notice that the story will not end where you think it should. The story will not end where you think it should. So read it and study it as normal, and I want you to try to to anticipate the conclusion, but then be shocked when it doesn't turn out that way. So let's notice the the story here. And I would entitle this story in verses 1 through 18, like if I were to give it like a, a series title, it would be The Provocation the provocation. For your future reference, if you wanted to know the next part of the chapter, verses 19 to 30, I would call that the explanation, the explanation. And then in a couple weeks, we'll make our way to verses 31 to 47, and that will be the verification. This chapter is about the authority of Jesus. There's a provocation, 
an explanation of that authority, and then there is a verification of that authority. Today, we're only looking at how Jesus provokes the establishment around him to display his authority, and then think of the implications of that. All right, so here we are in verse 1, and you notice that after this, the events that had happened previously, an undetermined amount of time, there was a feast of the Jews And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We don't have any mention of his disciples. All we know is that he is in Jerusalem for a feast. The feast is not even named. We don't know what this feast is. Therefore, guess what? It doesn't matter. People try to speculate these things. Who cares? I think what John wants us to know is that one, Jesus is by himself. Two, he's with a bunch of people in Jerusalem. You remember that these prescribed feasts would actually bring in all kinds of folks from out of town. Kind of like Naples in February. Just imagine that. And so it is, Jesus is in a huge crowd, and there's a specific spot in Jerusalem where he finds himself. Look in verse 2. It says, there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. So they had pools in their day uh, that were used, uh, I assume, for like beauty purposes for the city. And in Aramaic, called Bethesda. So the name of this pool is Bethesda. It's a particular place. It has five roofed colonnades. How many of you know what a colonnade is? All right, like seven of you. I had to look it up in the dictionary myself, so just don't worry. You know it has something to do with a column. But basically, it is like these, um, the best way that I could describe it to you in modern terms is if you ever go to like a public pool and there are these uh, shade things, you know, like where they make like the the tarp, the, the canvas roofs, and there's like four posts, and then you set the chairs underneath it. Uh, that's like a colonnade, except these were architecturally sturdy. I mean, think of something with big, like Roman columns, a big roof over it. They were simply there to provide shade. This particular pool actually had five of them. For those of you who like this kind of thing, you can geek out on this Um, like archaeologists have actually uncovered this particular pool in northern Jerusalem and found out that there were actually two pools with five of these colonnades around it in the shape of a trapezoid. So if you're familiar with uh, that particular shape, so there were four on the outside. They're kind of turned sideways, I guess, to catch the shade in a particular way. And there's one in the middle. Anyway, this is a verifiable spot. Here's an interesting thing, though, about this particular pool or pools. It was, they were connected to a spring. So that at various times, the water in these particular pools would occasionally bubble up. Uh, think of something like um, Old Faithful. You know, you have this, this phenomenal kind of event where the, the normal water there begins to bubble and disturb. Now, it's obviously not anything to that degree, but there actually is um, like some sense in which a natural phenomenon would take place in this pool. And if you grew up reading the King James, you're going to notice that as you read through this, you're going to think that some verses are missing. I mean, it's actually even in uh, our particular Bibles. I want you to, this is, this is fun. Look at verse 3. It says, In these, under these colonnades, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, And then I don't know about your Bible, but all of a sudden mine jumps to verse 5. You notice that? Now, again, I took math a long time ago, but I think 4 follows 3. We're missing something here. The reason why is because older manuscripts that are less accurate actually would add an explanation of a legend that would take place in this particular pool. You remember, for those of you who grew up reading the King James, it says that an angel would come down and stir the waters. And the first one to enter this particular pool when the angel stirred the waters would be healed. It's just a legend. It's just something that got passed on and recorded and ultimately explained. But the point is, whatever was going on in that water gave people enough hope, these sick people enough hope that they would actually try to, to crawl into this thing when the water was disturbed so that they could receive some form of deliverance or healing. It's a pitiful situation if you think about it. I mean, think you could have blind, lame, maimed, cripple. Some people drop them off there. 
I mean, the, the hygiene would be horrific. These people don't have any resources on their own. I mean, and they're actually like crawling over top of one another to get in this pool whenever this thing happens. I mean, they would fight and jockey for position with their disabled bodies to actually get as close to the pool as possible. I mean, the, the, the picture that is portrayed here is crowds of people, a multitude of invalids surrounding this large pool, and then Jesus standing in the middle alone, noticing one man in particular. Look in your text again, and it says in verse 5, one man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. John somehow finds this out, maybe through Jesus' longer conversation with this individual. 38 years. Now keep in mind, the normal life expectancy of individuals in, in the Roman Empire at this particular time is 40 years old. So this guy either like contracts this disease as a child, or he is a really old man by terms of this particular time frame. And Jesus sees him in particular, and it says in verse 6, when he saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, I don't know about you, friends, but... um. I think I know that there are some questions that should just never be asked. One of them is asking a woman whether or not she's pregnant. (laughs) Don't ever ask that question. I have made that mistake. It's a bad question. Tell you the story. If you come to my class Wednesday nights, I'll tell you the story. Another question. You see somebody broken down on the side of the road. You don't pull up and say, hey, you having car trouble? <laughs> nope. Just cooking steaks on my carburetor. I mean, like, of course he has car trouble. I mean, but especially, I mean, and, and pastors know this well, when you see somebody suffering in a hospital, for example, you don't go to them and be like, hey, why don't you just get better? What, you want to get well? We know this, and yet Jesus here is actually provoking this man to think about his situation for a moment. And the way that the guy responds, like some of us give this guy like the benefit of the doubt, but you could read the tone a couple of ways. You can assume that, oh, he's just really excited about what Jesus says. And he wants to like, uh, he wants some, you know, kind of healing or he's trying to like elicit sympathy. Or you could read it as kind of sarcastic. In light of the way that this guy will treat Jesus in the rest of the text, I'm going to go the sarcastic route here. I want you to note how he responds to Jesus when asked this particular question. He says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. You get what's going on here. It's like Jesus is asking, well, why don't you just get in the pool? Why don't you just get better? That's kind of like what he thinks he's hearing. And the guy's like, look, I've tried. I've, try- I've tried to clamor in there, and every time I'm trying to roll myself over into this particular pool, somebody else beats me to the punch. And then Jesus says to him, notice this, he doesn't just heal him, he commands him to do something. And it's three commands. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus exercises authority here over this man. He bosses him around and says, without any explanation of what's going to happen, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And you look at verse 9, and you see the miracle. There's no comment about the man's response other than this. At once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, reading the book of John up to this point, we would think, that's the point of the story. Jesus healed another person. 
Here he is, he's exercised this power once more. Wow, Jesus can turn water into wine. Jesus can make sick children better. Jesus can heal paralyzed people. You would think that. But I don't know like how things are laid out in your copy of God's word, but like mine like is right here, verse 9, and then like I've got all of this, and then all of this, and then all of this before I ever get to the end of the chapter. Clearly, John is not just concerned to show us that Jesus can perform a miracle. In fact, what John has done here is masterful. He withholds a particular piece of information that would normally be disclosed at the beginning of the story, and instead, he works it in right here. Normally, when you tell a story, you give the time in which it's happening to start off with. John did not tell us, other than the fact that it was around the time of a feast, what's going on here. And I want you to look at the last part of verse 9. In many copies of God's Word, it's moved to a new paragraph. But in the original, it's just all part of the same line. Do you see the shocking statement? Now that day was the Sabbath. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now, for, for those of you who aren't like, fully understanding the significance of this particular phrase and how it affects the story, I need to use some modern analogies with you for a second. There are certain things that we experience when watching movies or reading books. When we come across them, they change everything we've seen up to this particular point. Uh, If you've ever seen one of those movies like The Village or The Sixth Sense, There's a surprise ending at the end, and it affects everything else in the beginning. For you older types, if you've ever seen Planet of the Apes, and you look and see what happens at the end. Now, I can't give it away, because there's younger people here who haven't seen the end. But if you're older, you know what I'm talking about. You see what's sticking out of the sand at the end of that movie. And you're like, mind blown, I can't believe this was true about everything else that was going on. That's exactly what's going on here. That little line functions as that unnamed object at the end of Planet of the Apes. It's something that affects everything you've seen in the story so far. It was the Sabbath. Now, why is this such a provocative phrase? Because Jesus actually commands this guy to do something that went contrary to the popular law of the day in regard to the Sabbath. If you think of Jesus as the guy who is the round peg that fits in the round hole, you're going to find out here that that is absolutely not the case. He had some sharp corners, and he was doing what he did in this particular moment to provoke the religious establishment around him. He picks a crowded place, he picks a well-known invalid, and then he tells this particular guy, hey, I want to heal you, but here's what you're going to do. Not only do you need to be healed, but I want you to take up your straw cot, I want you to throw it over your shoulder, and I want you to walk around so that people can see you carrying it from point A to point B. See, the Pharisees in this particular day, the Jewish leaders who will be addressed earlier, they had some special laws that that protected the Sabbath. Now, you guys all know, many of you, that there was Old Testament regulation that on the seventh day, people were to cease from ordinary labor, the Sabbath. Uh, This was a beautiful law that God had baked into his economy, and basically it meant you just stop doing what you normally do and let God do his thing. But the Pharisees, they were, um, they were such fans of the rules that they made extra rules to protect their, God's rules. In fact, in regard to Sabbath regulations, they made up 39 more categories of rules regarding the Sabbath. 39! <laughs> and they're rather entertaining even when you think of them today. I don't want to like go through all of them for you, but there are still modern expressions of this, these rules that help protect the rules. Uh, how many of you have ever been maybe somewhere like New York or Los Angeles, and if you go into a hospital, you see something called the Shabbat elevator? You ever seen a Sabbath elevator before? <laughs> these are real, and they're funny, because you have all the normal elevators, and there's a Sabbath elevator. You know what the Sabbath elevator does? 
it stops at every floor of the building and just keeps coming back up and down, up and down, stopping at every floor. You know why? It's because the Jews still translate Sabbath laws today as somebody like pressing a button and completing a circuit is work. So therefore, if they're going to use the elevator, they're going to step into it so that they don't press the button, which would be considered work. I mean, there were all kinds of crazy logs. One of them even regarded spitting. If you spit on the ground, you had to be careful that your sandal didn't scuff the same spot or it might have accidentally caused a seed in some place to grow. (laughs) Another one was uh, picking up of a handkerchief. You actually couldn't even pick up a cloth and move it from one place to another. But if it was attached to your person you were okay. So if somebody wanted to move a cloth from one part of the house to the other, they would literally tie it around their person and move it and then untie it. I mean, this is crazy stuff, friends. This is exactly what Jesus is picking a fight with. I mean, they are upset over the fact that this guy is going to pick up a straw mattress and take it back to wherever he comes from. Notice what they say in verse 10. So the Jews, the Jewish leaders as we see in John, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, friends, was that God's rule? No, that was their rule. They made up some rules. And so here they are accosting this guy, and this is the nature of legalism, friends. Like, it denies the reality of what's happened. 38 years invalid. This guy receives grace and mercy from God. He's been miraculously healed. They don't say a word other than the fact you're not following our rules. It's not good enough for them. Because they have their own standard of amazing, and that is those who submit to the rules that they themselves have made up. And so, the man, notice how he responds to this. He does a good old-fashioned blame-shifting. I don't know where this phrase comes from, but it fits here. He threw Jesus under the bus. If anybody knows what that really means, come tell me later. But you know what I'm saying when I say that. He's going to sell Jesus up the creek here. Notice this, verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. It's not my fault. There was this other guy, this authority who came and he healed me, and he told me to take up my bed and walk. And so they asked him, here's the amazing thing, Jesus didn't even introduce himself. Verse 12, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? You see what they're concerned about now? Now they're concerned that somebody else is breaking the rules. (laughs) The guy does it supernaturally, but even then that had to break one of their laws. I mean, if pushing the button on the elevator breaks the law, surely healing a lame man breaks the law. They're like, okay, well, take us to the instigator of this entire travesty. And then in verse 13, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. So he doesn't know. And again, we could close our Bibles and say, well, there's the story. I guess he gets out scot-free. I mean, Jesus knows that this thing incited a riot, he knows that the, that the Jewish leaders would have had a cow over this guy carrying his cot from one place to another. Jesus could have just left it alone. He could have stayed anonymous. And yet, what does he do? Look in your Bibles at the shocking actions of our Lord. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. I'm the guy that healed you. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus then interacts with this guy in such a way that he makes it obvious who he is. Now, Jesus never says his name as recorded in this text, but the fact that Jesus links his physical healing to his spiritual well-being, don't sin anymore in this way, nothing worse be happening to you, it makes a connection in this guy's mind. He realizes, oh, this is that rabbi, this is Jesus, this is that one who was teaching about the kingdom of God entering. And so the guy now knows who Jesus is. 
And Jesus has given him a pretty stern warning. Now, we saw earlier, excuse me, that he exercised authority over the natural world. Now he's going to exercise authority over this guy's moral world. He says, okay, physically, get up. Spiritually, morally, don't sin anymore. So that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, can I take a a time out here? Because this is a disturbing text for many. Some people would read this and naturally think that this text must in some way or in some shape actually be saying that any time someone sins, there will be a direct physical consequence for it. Now, I want to be clear. That is not true. We're going to read in John chapter 9 about a guy who was born blind. And Jesus will explicitly say of that guy when they asked who, man, you know, who sinned, this man or his father. And he'll say, no one. This disability happened so that God may work in a way to receive the glory. Friends, I want you to understand that not every sickness that comes along in our life is because we directly sinned in some way. But sometimes there are physical consequences for our sin. This particular instance illustrates one. Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira sin against the Holy Spirit, lying about their resources, what happens? God kills them. And in 1 John chapter 5, we are warned against something called the sin unto death. Knowing that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ, our spiritual relationship with Him cannot be severed. The only way we can interpret that which is being described for us in 1 John is that there are some sins that are committed that will lead to physical or premature physical death. And so Jesus here is saying of this man, There was something that you had done in your earlier years that led for you to be cursed in this particular way, and you better not go back to that lifestyle or it will be even worse for you. This is a crazy exercise of authority. It's not just over the physical. He's ruling over the moral. And again, we have another opportunity to see what kind of guy this is. He could just like humbly come to Jesus and say, you're right. You're the Messiah. I want to do whatever you say. You know what he does? See, this guy is not just in bondage physically. He's in bondage psychologically to the religious establishment of the day. Because you know what happens? As soon as Jesus confronts him here, he goes and he runs off and he tells the Jewish authorities who it was that bossed him around in the first place. He turns Jesus in. Look at it in your own Bible. Verse 15, here's the man's response. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this provokes a controversy. Because those guys, those Jewish leaders, they go and they find Jesus. And now the debate is on. Uh, Notice uh, Jesus, uh, verse 16, it says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He did it on purpose, and he received from that persecution. Now they would try to hinder him, they would try to stop him, they would try to malign him, they would try to harm him. This is present active indicative. It is ongoing behavior. From this point forward, when he messed with their special rules, they started then trying to pour out their wrath on him. And here was Jesus' answer to them. Verse 17. Here's how he responded when they came and confronted him in the temple for breaking their rules. This is what he says. But the Father, and my Father, is working until now, and I am working. My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, for most of us here, uh, that phrase doesn't make a lot of sense, but you're going to need to be informed about a special theological debate that was going on in that particular day. This will help. We all have our pet debates, right? People argue over things that they don't think there's a real good answer to. How many of you have ever tried to entertain a conversation with somebody about whether or not God could build a rock so heavy he couldn't pick it up? 
Oh, wow. I guess it's just me. (laughs) I don't understand this one, but sometimes people debate over how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I don't even know why that's a debate. But for some people, they like to argue over stuff like that. You want to know what a popular religious debate was in this particular time? It's pretty interesting. Does God work on the Sabbath? Does God work on the Sabbath? What do you think? How many of you would vote yes, he does? Let me say no. Okay, y'all argue it out with one another. (laughs) They were arguing this out in informal academic rabbinic circles. And so one group of people were saying, no, God would not break his own law. There's no way. I mean, it says in Genesis chapter 1 that he ceased on the seventh day, and thereby he set an example. And then the more common sense rabbis among them, no offense to those of you who were in the second group, but they were like, no, wait, like, there's no, that's not total anarchy in the universe every seven days. Like, God ceased his creative work, he was done, he was finished, but he still superintends the universe on every day. So there is a sense in which even the Pharisees who who hated Jesus would have aligned with him on this particular theological debate and said, yeah, yeah, God is at work all the time. God doesn't have to follow the Sabbath. And now with that in mind, listen again to Jesus' response. My father is working until now and I am working. What does he do here? Do you see why this makes him so angry? He is saying that he and the Father have the same authority. God has the right to do whatever he jolly well pleases on the Sabbath, and so do I. In fact, I found this interesting for those of you who really like to dive deep in the debate, the way the rabbis justified God's working and not breaking the Sabbath rules was that on premise number one, the entire universe is his domain and therefore he can never carry anything outside of it. Remember what I was telling you about the handkerchief? You can move it, you know, like within your own house, but you weren't allowed to move stuff like into a different domain. Well, they were saying, since God owns everything, he doesn't move anything outside of his domain. And another one of the crazy things that they said about uh, the rules on the Sabbath is that you can't pick up anything over your own head. And so the rabbis had an answer for this one as well. God fills the whole world, Jeremiah 23, 24, which means he lifts nothing to a height greater than his own stature. (laughs) So God's so big, nothing can go above him, therefore he can do whatever he wants. But with these debates in mind, Jesus is saying, look, I can do this because my Father does this. We are on the same plane. That made them angry. But let me tell you what made them even more angry. I mean, in this verse, it says that they wanted to persecute him. In the next verse, it's going to say that they wanted to kill him. Persecution is different than actual murder. Look at your Bibles. It says, verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Friends, in the very response, my father is doing these things, Jesus was implying or stating explicitly, excuse me, that he is on the same plane as God, and by calling God my Father, that put them over the edge. Now, you're all thinking, well, I call God Father. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. What's the big deal with that? Well, they would even pray corporately in that day, our Father in heaven. That was nothing new to them. But to claim personal, ontological relationship with God the Father, he is my Father in a special way, unlike he would be anybody else's Father, that was beyond the bounds. And because of this, they wanted to kill him, and Jesus wanted to make it clear, I and the Father are one. We are on the same plane. In fact, he's going to explain this in the verses to come, and we don't have time to cover it today. But I want you to get the real point of the message. Here we are. We, we had story, right? Spa. Here's the point. Jesus sets himself up in this story as the ultimate authority. Jesus is the ultimate authority. This thing isn't about the healing. 
This is about Jesus provoking the religious leaders so that they would understand that he was over and above every rule that they would ever make up. He was at such a high height that it would, could be said that he is equal with the Father. He is not merely some kind of human revolutionary. He is not merely some created, supernaturally empowered demigod. He is equal with God the Father. The church, by the way, has summarized this teaching for almost 1,800 years through these careful words. You'll recognize them. I want you to know they are way more important than you could ever imagine. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Now, I don't think anyone's ever used the word consubstantial in a sentence, so let me unpack this one. Of the same essence as the Father. He is distinct from the Father in person. He is the same as the Father in essence. He is the ultimate authority. That's the point of verses 1 through 18. And I want you to know, friends, that that is fantastic news. Some of us in here really like the idea of Jesus being our rescuer. Yes, He rescues us. He saves us when we're in the plight of despair, uh, when our bodies are broken, when sin overtakes us. That is great news. But then you start to think of something like Jesus being the ruler, the authority. And depending on our interactions with the human authorities that we have had experience with in times past, that can either be great news or horrific news. And I'm not so naive as to think that everyone in this room has had stellar experiences with authorities in their lives in times past. And therefore, I would understand why there would be a little bit of reticence to rejoice in the rule of Jesus as much as you would rejoice in the rescue of Jesus. But I want you to understand something, friends, that He is the good, true, perfect ruler. In the application, in these closing moments, I just want you to understand that as we view Jesus as the ultimate authority, this is truly fantastic and practical news. It reminds me of that beautiful section toward uh, the the middle of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Susan asks, who is Aslan? Now, you'll remember Aslan is... This, this lion figure who represents Christ in this al- allegory. And Mr. Beaver explains, Aslan, why you don't know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. Lucy then interjects, and she's kind of confused about this because she's not really all that sure that she wants to meet the guy that's the king and the lord of everything. So Mr. Beaver goes on to explain, look, he's not just a normal man like you would think of him. He's actually a lion. Well, this scares Lucy even more. She doesn't know if she wants to meet a lion. And so Susan, answering on her behalf, says, oh, I, I, thought, I thought he was just a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Then Miss Beaver chimes in, That you will, dearie, and no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So Lucy asks, Then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The authority that you fear is bad authority. The authority that we all crave is good. And it is represented perfectly 
in our rescuer and ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus is no mere rebel, nor is he a mere rule follower. He's the ruler, and he rules over the rules, and this is a good, good thing. In fact, there's a group of theologians who gathered together in the 16th century in the country that we now know as Germany, and they were the, the, the faculty of a school, and they were trying to like, take on the religious education of the like, entire country at that particular time. And I know that sounds strange to you, because we're Americans, and we're all about the separation of church and state, but post-Reformation, like, there was still a heavy degree of religious influence in political matters, and so they wanted to make sure that the rule, I mean, the, excuse me, the religion that was represented would lead to the flourishing of all. And so they came up with this list of questions and answers that would later be called the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, what these, some of the most brilliant minds and godly men of the time tried to do was take all that the Bible taught and organize it in a simple question and answer kind of format. Now, think about that. All the Bible teaches putting it in question and answer format, what are you going to ask? And in what order are you going to ask it? Listen to, this is so important, listen to the first question and its answer. Question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What is your only hope in life and death? The American answer to that would be that I get to call the shots, that I get to do what I want, that nobody bosses me around. The Christian answer to that is, I am not my own, but belong both body and soul and in life and death to my Savior, Jesus Christ. It is fantastic news, and the answer continues. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And here's the end. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. For it is good news to place yourself under His rule. I'm telling you, the alternative is devastating. It is absolutely devastating. Have you noticed, friends, like when you put together your entire Bible, you realize that stuff started going wrong around Genesis chapter 3. And you know what that was? It was mankind choosing to do his own thing over God's thing. Rebellion against the ruler, Genesis 3. And all hell breaks loose after that. And you know what the crazy thing is? Like a congenital disease, we all develop this same penchant for rebelling against God, just like our first parents. And it has been an absolute nightmare, even to this present day. Despite all the supposed blessings of modernity, the more critical thinkers around us still understand that this thing is broken and beyond repair. Despite man's best attempts at autonomy, we live in a flaming dumpster fire. In fact, I was blown away this week reading, this is just a a book, and it was the most pessimistic book I've ever read in my life. You don't need to read it. I'll save you the time. But the title is called um, 4,000 Weeks. And the idea is all of us have 4,000 weeks to live, and we need to try to do as much as we can, you know, in those 4,000 weeks. Well, the guy at the end of the day is a total nihilist. Like, he just thinks that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And you know what his time productivity solution is? Stop trying. It doesn't matter anyway. I'm not kidding. <laughs> this is a New York Times bestseller. 
I want you to listen to just a few lines from his epilogue because I think he captures the contemporary situation fairly well, despite the fact that I disagree with his premise. He says, the key to getting the hang of hopelessness lies in seeing things that aren't going to, uh, seeing that things aren't going to be okay. Indeed, they're already not okay. On a planetary level or an individual one, the Arctic ice is already melting. The pandemic has already killed millions and crashed the economy. Thousands of species are already gone. As one woman said in a New York Times article about city dwellers learning how to survive in the woods on deer meat and berries, people say, oh, when the apocalypse comes, what are you talking about? It's here. The world is already broken. And what's true of the state of civilization is equally true of your life. It was always already the case that you would never experience a life of perfect accomplishment or security, and your 4,000 weeks have already been running out. Despite his pessimism, you can try to disagree, but have you seen the news this week? In fact, I haven't, I've, I've, you can ask my wife this, I haven't read a single news article about what happened in Texas. Because I don't want to. I'm so tired of being inundated with the brokenness of this world. Friends, this thing is messed up. And everybody's patting themselves on the back for human progress. This is the lie of self-rule. We thought that we had it all figured out. We thought that we could run things our own way. And it stinks to high heaven. You know what we've replaced it with? God's rule. We've replaced it with one of two things. Either self-rule or religious traditional rule. The religious traditional rule is the attempt of the Pharisees to like go hard on the religious side of things. And if I follow these certain rules, all of a sudden everything will be rectified and right. And so people keep trying to go to church more and give more and confess more and be involved more and they're on this like hamster wheel of self-righteousness and they are totally exhausted and they have no hope. But the one that's more popular in our current day and age is actually self-rule. Self-rule. And we thought that this would give us the life that we were always looking for and yet our individualism has come at a great price. I'm borrowing here from one author, paraphrasing, rebellion for God's rule now makes us responsible for living a life of purpose, defining our identity, interpreting meaningful events, choosing our own values, and electing where we belong. Once we are liberated from God's values, we become responsible for the meaning of our own life. With no God to judge or justify, we must become our own redeemer, our own ruler, And this burden manifests itself as a desperate need to justify our lives through identity crafting and goal getting. And some rise to the challenge, submitting to the tyranny of self-improvement, and some just give up altogether. And I'll tell you, friends, this hamster wheel existence of trying to remake yourself and live out your identity and become your best you is soul-sucking. And that's why we medicate. We medicate ourselves to cope with the exhaustion and emptiness of the lives that we chose for ourselves. Some of the modern remedies include drinking, prescription medications, eating, binge-watching whole seasons of TV shows, cutting, immersing oneself in the news, playing video games, shopping, sleeping, scrolling social media, arguing online, obsessing over our health, traveling, multi-level marketing, gambling, pursuing romance, watching porn, investing, the list could go on. And, And these signify symptoms of self-rule when they are your endless and ongoing obsessions. Some of those things on that list are forbidden at all times. Some of them are forbidden as obsessions. And frankly, friends, if you're being honest with yourself, there just ain't no way 
that I could read off a list like that and not some of us in here identify, I've been self-medicating. You know what that's a symptom of? Self-rule. You have yet to fully embrace the goodness of Jesus' rule. His way of doing things. That's why he said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You think that the greatest threat to your happy existence is actually doing everything the Word of God says. And in fact, it is your key to freedom. Here's the good news, friends. This is, this is the good news. You don't have to redeem or rule yourself. Indeed, you cannot So the Father sent His Son. Listen to this. The Father sent His Son, empowered by the Spirit, to secure your righteousness. All is well because He's obeyed on your behalf. He atoned for your sin, your rebellion, via His death on the cross. So the wrath of God is fully satisfied. God's not angry anymore. You don't have to actually do anything to actually earn His approval. And the same Jesus rose again from the dead. Rising for your justification, showing that things are right, and for his vindication, proving once and for all, if there was any, any doubt at all, that he is Lord, he is master, he is owner, he is ruler, he is boss. He's the only one that has bossed around death and won. And he invites us under his rule to thrive under his ownership. And so I ask you, as a practical conclusion, two quick questions. Have you submitted to Him in repentance and faith? Have you submitted to Him in repentance and faith? Be gone with these damnable ideas that somehow you can ask Jesus to be Savior and not to be Lord. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus is Lord. You do not make him so. So whatever salvific experience you may be able to identify in your past that was somehow devoid of you submitting to him as your ruler, it was not real. He is a redeemer and a ruler. You don't get to pick and choose. And so I ask, have you submitted yourself to his good gracious rule and thereby receive the benefits of his rule you know that plays itself out internally as you trust in him and you finally confess him as lord you're made a disciple right and then you know what jesus actually said these are jesus words not mine we just read it earlier in matthew 28 He says, those who are actually made disciples are then marked as disciples. Can I just be clear about something? If you're saying that that level of change has happened in your heart, but you refuse to be marked or identified through baptism and then ongoing fellowship with the church and membership and communion, which are the same thing, it makes me question whether or not you've submitted to his lordship. It's just the public sign of identifying with him. Kind of like this wedding ring, right? Like I... I don't do this to become married. I do it because I want people to know I am. Jesus said, look, I've got a way for people to know that you're aligned with me. Here it is. Get baptized and then walk with me in the company of my church, gathering for the preaching of the gospel and the practice of communion. It's that simple. You know what happens after that? As you continue to gather with with Christ's people, you're matured as a disciple And no, your life doesn't change immediately, right away. It is painful, it is slow, but it does indeed change. (laughs) Like the fruit trees that I've put in my yard. I can't see them growing, but I can tell a whole lot of difference between last year and this year. We begin to mature. We begin to change. And as we are maturing, you know what healthy things do according to the Scriptures? They multiply. We begin to impact others. Which is why I'm even offering a class on that. We, this is part of just the maturity process. We begin to make disciples as well. We're made a disciple through faith and repentance. We're marked as a disciple in baptism and communion. We are matured as we continue to gather with the church and study God's Word. And then we multiply. Like, that is God's good plan. I'm telling you, it's, a, it's a wonderful way to live. 
I know some of you think, I don't know if I want to sign on the dotted line. It, there is nothing better. You know what, like we say, like the mission, like what we're trying, like evaluating church health here is, like we can look at each person and say, are they delighting in Jesus? We want you enjoying Jesus through the means that he's provided. And then you get to serve one another in love, contribute to the good of other people. It is such meaningful work. And then you have the opportunity to advance the gospel and see other people brought in. And you get to continue to do this on the platform of evidence good works. You live your life. You work hard. You bring in a living. You take care of your family. And God is pleased with that. And the gospel is platformed. It's a great way to live. And so I'm asking, have you come under his rule? And then the second question, and we're done. Are you relying upon Him even now for hope and life and death? I say this to those of you who are already under His rule. Don't listen to the siren song of alternate rulers. Beware of the American dream that would lure you away with the promise of prosperity and popularity from the simple life that Jesus has called us all to live. He reigns. And this is a good thing. So let us now rejoice in the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ in prayer and song. Father in heaven, you have made your Son both Lord and Judge. Truly God and fleshed in humanity. He has redeemed us. He rules over us. And we rejoice anew this morning. For those who have not come under His rule, draw them in even today. May they know the grace and the goodness of following Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in His name we pray. Amen.